Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello, I hope you are enjoying the festive period. Today we continue in this series of Bat Chat with a bat worker who is an expert in bat echolocation calls and has just published a new book on the subject. I'm Steve Rowe, a BCT trustee, and if you're a regular listener, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening to Bat Chat, welcome along. Episodes are released every second Wednesday from now through to the spring, and you can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat. That's a one word. As we meet each of the guests in this series, you'll hear stories from people working to make a difference in the world of bat conservation. People who care about individual species, people who concentrate on one particular part of bat ecology, and people who are working with bats at a landscape scale. As well as keeping up with the latest news and hearing from people in the world of bats, we hope that you'll be inspired to get involved, because bats need our help. In this episode, we're with someone who specialises on one particular part of bat ecology, specifically echolocation calls. Today I'm in my home county of Derbyshire and I'm taking you back to a summer's evening when I sat down with John Russ who explained what he was doing in Derbyshire as twilight started to fall. Well we're mainly sat in the churchyard because you've, you've asked me to, <laughs> to do this podcast or you, you've sort of uh, pushed me into doing this podcast I feel. But, well we're sat in this churchyard because we're here this evening to survey this beautiful church, St Peter's Church in Netherseal as part of the bats in churches project and the aim of this is to try and come up with some novel approaches novel methods to try and deal with the bat problem in this church um, so we're here surveying this walk this evening to try and find out um, exactly what species we have here and where they're roosting where the exit holes are and what sort of mitigation we could put in place to try and minimize the um, droppings really that they're getting inside the church. What sort of species have they got here? All we found so far is brown long-eared bats. That's nice. not so. There isn't more. We found some um, smaller pipistrelle-sized droppings in here, but we've not managed to find any all summer. I have a feeling they're not back. So, your name's coming up quite a lot this week because you've just published a rather thick book called Bat Calls of Britain and Europe, which is quite a hefty volume. How did you? get into echolocation before we get onto the book what how, how come you are a specialist in bat echolocation calls i suppose that question is really how did you get into bats because the first thing i did was was bat echolocation and bat social calls um i was doing a um a degree in zoology at the university of aberdeen and in the final year you have to do a project an honors project and usually they publish a, a list on the wall um of projects that you can do and supervisors you can do the projects with. 
and two of them looked quite interesting. And one of them was with um, I think it was Dr. Xavier Lambin, and it was looking at dispersal in Orkney voles. And the other one was just called Bats and Bridges, and that was within with uh, Paul Racy, who was the Regis Professor of um, Zoology at the time. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll go and have a look at this Orkney voles one. So I went to meet Xavier. So he, he took me out of the back of the uh, the lab, and there was a, a small concrete enclosure it measured about five meters by five meters, with some longish grass in it. And he said, "What you'll be doing is you'll be putting little red flags on Orkney voles, um, <laughs> letting them go in this enclosure, and watching them all summer." And uh, and I thought, "Oh God, I don't think I could. I don't think I could spend all summer doing that." Um, let's find out what this bat one is. Um, so I went to see Paul Racy, and he was quite enthusiastic. He said, it'll be absolutely brilliant. You'll be out, you'll be on a rubber dinghy uh, on the River Dee and the River Don, going under bridges with a torch, trying to find mating bats. And I thought, that sounds a bit more interesting, really, than looking at Orkney voles. <laughs> As it happened, the, the, uh, the, the boat thing didn't happen. The rubber dinghy thing didn't happen for, I think, probably health and safety reasons. <laughs> um, but I did spend a lot of time uh, that winter lying or autumn lying under bridges staring up at the underside listening to that lovely (coughs) (coughs) the social calls of the uh soprano pipistrelle that was very good thank you very much i've had a lot of practice actually (laughs) i'm quite good at time expansion ones as well (laughs) um so that's how i got into bats and it was um it was actually jens rodel who um unfortunately passed away this year um, Jens is very, very well known in the bat world. I mean, it was Jens that taught me the fundamentals of echolocation. The first time I was given a bat detector, um, Paul Racy said, go out with Jens and he'll teach you all about bats. So we went out to Seaton Park in Aberdeen and Jens got a stick and he was scratching sonograms and, and uh, doing exactly what I did then, making noises, you know, of what the bats sound like, teaching me how to tell the differences um, and then he took me out for two or three nights along the River Dee in Aberdeen, just teaching me how to separate the different bats and what the social calls sound like. Um, and I think probably the first time I turned on the bat detector, I got completely hooked. And you've got this completely silent black night, and you turn on the detector and suddenly the whole night comes alive. It was absolutely amazing. I found it pretty entrancing, to be honest. And I still get that same buzz today, actually, when I turn on the bat detector and hear a pipistrelle flying around. I mean, it's fantastic. And what sort of detectors were you using back then? How many years ago are we talking now? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good question. I, I'm, I think probably 20, 25 years, maybe. Yeah, yeah, possibly even nearly 25 years. Long, long time ago. And I was using, it was, um, yeah, I was using an S22 bat detector, if I remember rightly. I don't know if anyone's still got any of those. I think it was made by Ultrasound Advice. I'm not totally sure. Um, and I, and uh, I also used a Batbox 3, which was very, very good detector. In fact, I've still got that detector. Um, still use it from time to time. It's very, very good. I've still, got mine. still got mine as well. Yeah, yeah they're brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant little things. So from there, you did your PhD and that got you into bats and eventually into bat echolocation. You then published what I consider the original bat calls book, which was... Um, I can't remember what it was called now. It had like a green and red and blue bat or it something. It was a very, very strange cover, wasn't yeah. it? it? It looked like um, someone had drawn a picture. Actually, I shouldn't say this really in case the artist gets offended. Um, it, it basically, 
<laughs> I do feel reluctant to say it, but it did look like uh, someone had painted bats and then not let it dry properly and it smeared <laughs> into this sort of uh, grotesque uh, sort of bat image on the front. And I think it was called um, Bat Calls of Britain and Ireland uh, Species Identification, I think. Um, yeah, that was a long time ago. That that started really. I didn't I didn't really intend to publish a book. I just started putting a few notes together when I was in Ireland, of how to separate the different species. And it was really just for people in Ireland. And someone said, "Well, why don't you expand it to include some of the bats in Britain?" So I had a go at that. And some of the bats had hadn't had an awful lot of experience with at the time. And I think I showed it to um, oh, I showed it to some chap at one of the conferences. And I remember he, he said, "Well, you really should publish this somewhere." It was Andrew McLeish. Uh, who eventually decided to publish it. So yeah, that was, um, oh, I don't know, when when was that, Steve? I want to say 1990-something. Yeah, that'll do. 1990, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 1999 maybe. And was that the precursor to then what became the first edition of Backhauls of Britain? Did that lead into that, or was that very much a separate publication? It did lead in for, up to it. I always intended to publish a European Backhauls book after that one. And uh, originally it was going to be with Colin Cato. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Colin. Um, he worked for the Back Conservation Trust for, for many years. Um, now he lives in Thailand. Um, and that project failed. Then I tried to start it again with Danilo Russo. Um, and he basically, he didn't have time really, and I didn't have time. And we just left it. Basically, um, I met Nigel Masson of Pelagic Publishing at one of the conferences and it was really him that kick-started the whole project. I mean, basically, he, he kept giving me deadlines. And, uh, I mean, everyone hates deadlines, but I, I'm quite good at trying to stick to them. And I, and I sort of stuck to his um, better than I thought I would. Um, so, yeah, that really involved um, collecting lots of calls that people had sent me, going out and doing a lot of my own field work, um, and also starting to augment some of the chapters from the previous book on um, sound analysis and cool identification, the physics of sound. I mean, I felt the first book, book really was pretty scrappy. Um, I, as I said, it was never really intended to be a book. It just mm. got thrown together. The second one, I did really intend it to be a, a published book. Um, so, yeah, I worked quite hard on that. I think that probably took about... I mean, the whole thing took about 10 years, but really the last bit took about, I think, three years to put together, um, trying to fit it in and around all the bat surveys and bat work, as you know. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, but yeah, eventually published that. Come on, when was that published, Steve? Oh, I don't know. I meant to have done my research. And I have haven't. you not done any research? <laughs> when was that published? A while ago now. 10 years, was it? Yeah. I mean, do you know, have you got any idea how many copies have been sold? No. I say it on every consultant's bookshelf. It's clearly a very popular book. So what? where did the need for this new one, Back Calls of Britain and Europe, that's just been published this week, where did that need to add in the European uh, species come in? Yes, there's something I, I forgot to point out. I, I did intend to do this European book beforehand, but I just realised that um, you know, Daniela was too busy. He was going to cover the European species that I couldn't do. So I just decided to just do, let's just do what I know. Let's just do the British bats. Um, this new book, I've been meaning to do it for years, and Nigel kept pushing me to, to do this book. Um, and I thought, well, I mean, it's going to be really easy, isn't it? I'll just throw in a few of these <laughs> European species into the existing book. It's not going to be difficult. Um, and then I started looking into it, and I started to get worried, because um, I realised I don't actually know a lot about these European <laughs> species, and there's actually a lot. There's a lot more species 
in, in Europe than we just get in Britain. Yeah, so I, I did start to panic a bit and thought, how am I actually going to do this? And then I hit on the brilliant idea of actually getting someone else to do all the work for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say that. What I thought was, well, why not get some experts around Europe who are you know, experts in their field at, at these particular species and get them to write the chapters for the different species? Because they're going to know, know a lot more about it than I am. Um, and then we, I expanded this into also getting people to write um, different chapters in the other sections. So, for example, Grace Marsh wrote um, the chapter on acoustic communication in bats which is a fantastic chapter. Arjun Boonman and his brother Martin um, helped to write the chapter on Bats and Sound. Um, Philip Briggs uh, helped to write the call analysis section. Um, so really I was just drawing on experts from, from around Europe to just help me put this thing together, really. And how, long's, how long is it? <laughs> That's easy for you to say. Yeah. How long has it taken to put this together then? It took four years, I think. I, I think it was, I think it was three years, really, really hard work, and then four years tweaking it. Um, so it was a lot quicker than I thought. Um, the, the hardest bit really was because you're using so many different authors. And I think this is off the top of my head, but I think there's about forty authors in this book. The hardest bit is is, um, is managing all the different authors, authors, and making sure everything is consistent across chapters uh, and also making sure everyone's handing stuff in on time um, because some, some people handed stuff in within a month and some people it took them three years <laughs> um, and I have to say I was one of the people that, that took three years to hand in some of the chapters but we, I mean we got it together in the end and who's it aimed at who's it aimed at yeah oh it's aimed at absolutely everybody yeah it's one of those um it's a bit like Stephen Hawkins's book, you know, you put it on the coffee table, don't actually read it, just go out and buy it. Um, well, it's aimed at everybody, really. It's aimed at beginners. I mean, you can, I mean, there's a lot of basic stuff in there. It, it may seem a bit intimidating at first when you first open it up. There's a lot of information in there. But you can just pick, you know, pick and choose which bits you want to read. So it's aimed all the way from beginners, all the way to professional um, consultants, and also people doing back research. I mean, there's there's references throughout to all, all the um, information contained within the separate species chapters and, and the other chapters. Um, so I suppose anyone who has any um, interest in bats, or, or not, <laughs> but buy it for someone for Christmas. And apart from the book, if people want to get into bat detecting, where would you recommend they start? Well, I mean, the first thing to start really is just to get a bat detector. You can get some very, very cheap bat detectors now. A lot of the ecological consultancy um shops sell them um i mean you, you can you can actually pick up uh, i think there's one's a haynes bat detector which you can make yourself just solder the bits together um i can't remember offhand but i think that's about 30 quid you can buy a good cheap bat detector for about 60 quid um and just go out there i mean you'll get as soon as you turn the bat detector on i, I promise you'll get hooked and um, the night will come alive and you'll start to hear and see these bats everywhere because of course as soon as you start hearing them you'll see them as well i mean a lot of us walk out in the evening and you know haven't got a clue what's flying above our heads um, but you turn one of these things on and you'll see straight away so i mean the first thing to do i think is, is get a bat sector if, if you want to go out and try it i'd recommend going to your local bat group there's so many bat groups i think every county in um, england scotland wales and ireland i think actually 
um, have back groups. So find out who your back group is. It's easy enough. You just go to the Back Conservation Trust website um, and hook up with them. They'd be more than happy to take you out back detecting. And what's your preferred back detector? What do you use at the minute? Um, that's that's a difficult question as well. Um, favorite back detector? I think my favorite back detector is the first back detector that I used for research. Actually, I'm going to digress slightly because the, the first back detector I properly used for, for research, as in to, to research something to, 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 to make a published paper, was a. It was the microphone of an S22 back detector connected to a, a high-speed Raquel tape recorder, um, which was a massive thing. I mean, it was the size of a, a size of a small suitcase, and you had to connect it to a petrol generator. <laughs> and, so it wasn't the most portable thing, but I, I use this to record the old sound of uh, the, the social calls of spine pipstrels. But uh, to answer your question, I suppose the bat detector that I still use is the Petson D980. I still think it's a superb bat detector. I think it's probably because I'm completely used to it. I've been using it for, I don't know, 20 years now. And it's uh, it does heterodyne frequency division and time expansion. Um, and I think it's just my favourite detector. But there's lots of other detectors I use at the moment. At the moment, there's the Pearsonic detector, which is absolutely superb for the price. Really, really clear recordings. Um, I use a Duet because the heterodyne is is superb on that. Very, very easy to use. I'm also using uh, Petson. Do you just want me to list a big list of back detectors? Don't mind. Plug <laughs> I'm what, also plug using what you like. a uh, Petson uh, M500384. So you can um, have live visual representation of the sounds, you know, the sonograms in the field. Um, and then a few static detectors like the bat logger. I think that's, yeah, I think that's about it. So at some point along the way of the last 25 years, I mean, in amongst doing the PhD, doing your consultancy work, writing several books, you got really interested in Nathusius Pipistrel. Where did that interest come from? That was while I was doing my PhD at Queen's University Belfast. The PhD was to look at, not, not, no one had really done any research on bats in Northern Ireland before. And the PhD really um, was to do whatever I liked. But one of the things was to survey the whole of Northern Ireland for bats, which was a pretty difficult task. And I went about doing it by surveying um, one kilometre squares, random one kilometre squares throughout Northern Ireland um, using a time expansion detector. And on one of these squares in um, Antrim, Antrim Town, which is northeast of Loch Ney, which is the massive water body in the middle of Northern Ireland, I was there one evening and just heard that classic um, male social call of an enthusiast pipistrelle, which sounds a bit like... <whistles> and I, I just knew immediately, having heard recordings, that it was an enthusiast pipistrelle. And I, I knew straight away, you know, that I'd, I'd got one. Um, and myself and um, James O'Neill, our colleague from my other time, went back over several nights and caught a few of these bats and found out that we'd discovered this maternity colony of Nathesis pipistrels, which was the first record for Ireland. And I think it was the second record for the United Kingdom. Hmm. Um, maternity colony, that is. And I just... I mean, I was just quite pleased about that, to be honest. And I just wanted to find out more. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll, 
I looked at John Speakman's paper. John Speakman did a paper on it. Um, I think it was a zoology, uh, Journal of Zoology published it in. Um, and he'd found, I think it was 22 records of Nathusius pipistrelle in Britain. Um, and he'd, he'd looked at the data and, and seen that there seemed to be these little peaks in, in uh, this little peak in August, indicating that maybe the bats are migrating over here. Um, and John, John concluded that they were migrating over here and overwintering um, and then flying back in the spring. Um, so I sent out this questionnaire to all the bat groups to ask if they had any records they could send me. Sent, they could send me, and I think every bat group, apart from one, um, replied. Um, not all of them had records. I think about forty percent did. Hmm. Um, and I just started collecting data really from there. Um, so I've just I've published a couple of papers over the years, and I've gradually been collecting data. I'm trying to put something together at the moment, which is showing, again, this seasonal distribution. It's very, very clear now that you're getting these brilliant peaks in spring and autumn, um, which exactly um, coincide with those spring and autumn migrations. Um, but you're getting records all year round. So you're, you're obviously getting hibernating bats and you're getting bats here in the summer. But also something I haven't published yet is the, the gradual spread that we seem to be getting from the, the south east um, and the, the northwest across in a sort of westwards direction, which is very interesting. I'm still trying to work out whether this spread represents a, a, a real spread. I, I think it is. I think they are gradually increasing their range throughout the British Isles, particularly when you, you look at things like, um, you know, we, we find a lot of records around large water bodies and these reservoirs. And a lot of these reservoirs, they're quite new, really. They're relatively new. Some have only been around for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, and we're getting the thesis pipstrels at loads of those. And I, I find, I find that quite fascinating. I particularly find Northern Ireland fascinating because they seem to be quite common there. And you've got this huge water body, Loch Ney. Um, you've got, um, Loch Beg, which is north of that. Then you've got upper and lower Loch Ern in County Fermanagh over in the west. And you get the thesis pipstrels everywhere. They're all around the place. Um, and I've always wondered whether, uh, I'm not totally sure about this. I always wonder whether it's some sort of remnant population over in um, Ireland. You know, they, they've sort of been there all along. Um, whereas in Britain, they're starting to recolonise. But don't don't ask me for particular details, because that's maybe pie-in-the-sky type stuff. Um, I think I need to think more about that. So that work and those records you've been keeping over the years helped kick-start the Nathusis Pipistrel projects. What sort of impact has that project had on bat conservation? Well, that project, I think, has been superb. That was, um, I think Dan Hargreaves uh, had a lot to do with that. The, the, the method using the um, acoustic laws and the, and the harp traps was, was superb. I mean, instantly they, they, they got dozens and dozens of, of new records from different lakes um, and all, all, over, all over Britain. And, and some of the fantastic things, which I guess has been in a way proving what John was saying years ago, was that we're getting bats crossing, clearly crossing the North Sea and the English Channel. I mean, there's those, the, the records of ringed bats that we've heard, I think from Latvia, Estonia, um, over here. I think more recently there's one in Russia, Western Russia has been discovered over here. And it's absolutely incredible how far these bats actually fly. I guess that's, you know, one of the most exciting things, I think, to come out of the project, I think. 
and generally just the, the huge increase in, in records has been superb. And, and everyone's aware of them now. Everyone's aware of Nathesis Pipistrelle. And when, when I started looking into them, I think everyone just thought, well, we, we don't really get them. And so you don't really listen. And, it, and it's a bit like the Common and Soprano Pipistrelle, isn't it? I mean, everyone just thought, well, they're Pipistrelles. And then, um, you know, Gareth Jones started to do work actually separating these species and, and discovering that they were actually two different species, the common and soprano. And it's a bit like the enthusiasts, you know, until somebody says, um, you know, maybe we should go out and look for these a bit more. Um, we don't really, which is why we need to really start actively searching for these, you know, Jeffrey's bats. Um, what else? <laughs> um, oh, what pond else? Bats, pond bats. Yeah. Party coloured bats. Come on, they're probably everywhere. Cools. Cools, Pippa's cool. How do you search for cools? Because they've got very similar, yeah. they're within that same echolocation range, aren't they? Uh, yes, I, I, I don't think you can separate them. Some people say there are small differences between the echolocation. I have to say, I'm not an expert on cools at all, but you can definitely separate them on the social cools, and it's very, very clear. Um, and they're finding um, quite a few records, aren't they, it's in, in, the, in the southeast. Yeah. I can't remember the name. I was just going to say the name of the place. I can't remember. Do you, do you remember offhand? I don't know. I don't oh. know. Yeah, I sent a record a few weeks ago as well. <laughs> but that, I mean, they could be they could be spreading throughout the the UK. What's been your most memorable bat experience over the last twenty odd years? You got one. <laughs> what an awful question. <laughs> most most memorable bat experience. I that's that is really hard. Um, I don't think I have just one experience. I just have lots of experiences. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I, wor I worked in Madagascar for, I went there on four separate occasions and that, that was absolutely amazing to, to see, to see some incredible bats. I mean, the, the most exciting bat I think I caught over there. Um, and yeah, that's probably one of the highlights was, was the, um, Malagasy sucker footed bat. It's absolutely incredible. It's got these suckers on its wrists and its um, and its ankles, um, and it's not quite like the sucker bats that you find in South America. It uses a different system for for sucking on things. It actually uses dry dry adhesion um, for for um, it sort of sticks onto like rolled up banana leaves and ravenala leaves and roosts in, inside them. So I think that's one of the highlights is working in Madagascar. Um, and, and seeing the sucker-footed bat and all the other bats and, and also you know, living out in the rainforests, getting covered in leeches and living on beans and rice was quite, an experience, quite a memorable experience. Um, so when was Madagascar and why were you out there then? Um, I was there originally in um, 1999 um, and it was, a, it was a university project with the Queen's University Belfast and we really just went out there to... It was an inventory of the bats in, in Madagascar. Mm. The main aim, really, actually, was to catch as many different species as we could and try and come up with a cool library to make it easier for the for the researchers in, in Madagascar to uh, identify bats without actually having to capture them. And I think we did quite a good job at the time. And we, we left some bat detectors when we left. Um, and we did a follow-up project, uh, I think it was a couple of years later, um, to do the same sort of thing, but in different parts of the country. And I went back there two years after that um, with Richard Jenkins, who was doing a Dar he had a Darwin Initiative grant to basically set up an NGO, a bat NGO um, in Madagascar. 
And as part of that, I went out there to, to help do some research in, in different parts of the country. Again, it was a bit like doing bat inventories of different areas to find out what they had. Um, so that, that was quite exciting. Nice. What don't we know about the Batek location that you think there is still left to learn? I, I think there's a lot to learn about bat social calls. Um, and I say this really because it's something I'd still love to be involved in doing research on bat social calls. I think it, it was a real passion of mine when I, I got into it. You know, I, I, you know, I still get a buzz listening to, um, as I said earlier, Pipistrel, Soprano Pipistrel, Thesis Pipistrel, Compistrel social calls. And I'd really love to find out more about the function of these. There has been a lot of work on it, but there's still a lot of work. There's still a lot we don't know. I mean, we're still categorising all these calls into A types, B types, C types. And we're attempting to try and categorise these into their function. But I don't know whether that's entirely valid. I mean, we're putting them into these categories, A, B, C and D. And uh, really, there's so much more work to look at what, what the function of these separate social calls are. Yeah. So finally then, what are your views on auto-ID? Your final question is on auto-ID. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose when auto-ID came out, it, it wasn't really that great. And I didn't, I didn't really think highly of it. But recently, I mean, I'm talking really recently in the last sort of year, I think there's been some huge advances with auto-ID. Things like the BTO acoustic pipelines seem to be really, really good. Um, it doesn't always get it right, and I don't, I don't think these auto-ID things ever will always get it right. But then humans don't always get it right either. Um, and, and the sonobat son son um, that Martin Cook has been working on, I think is really, really good. It's very impressive. But they, they should be used alongside, um, I think, using a, a, a manual batch detector. I think the two complement each other. I mean, one, one of the huge things, one of the, few, the great things I find about auto-ID stuff is it gets rid of the pipistrels to start with because pipistrels make up 80 to 90% of the calls you're recording, particularly when you're leaving out static bat detectors. And if you can get rid of a lot of those and maybe some of the other species, you know, you can concentrate on just looking at the, the, the more difficult ones, which sometimes these auto ID systems, um, can't pick up on. But as I said, they, they, they should really be used, I think. They should be used alongside, um, using human methods, as it were. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a good answer. No, that's a sensible answer. John Russ, thank you very much. And I'm going to force John now to sign my book. Thank you very much. And thank you to John for spending the evening with me back in summer. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll find a link to John's new book, as well as advice on bat detectors. You'll also find a link to an earlier episode from series one, when I joined Dan Hargreaves on the South Coast on the hunt for Nathusius pipistrels. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we launched Batchat's first ever competition. Children's authors Emma Reynolds and Angela Mills have kindly donated prizes. Angela has donated a copy of Bobby the Brown on Geared Bat, signed by both Angela and Chris Packham, and Emma has donated a copy of her newly released book, Amara and the Bats. To enter the competition to win one of these brilliant books, all you have to do is write us a review about this podcast, Batchat, and the two winners will be picked at random at the end of this series. 
Not all podcast apps allow you to leave reviews, so if you're an Apple device user, leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app, which is already installed on your device. If you're an Android user, you can leave us a review on the Podcast Addict app. And if you're not listening to this on a mobile device, you can write your review on the Podchaser website. Instructions of how to leave your review in each of these places can be found in the show notes of this episode. Remember, we need to be able to contact you if you win. So when you leave your review, make sure you give us your Twitter or Instagram handle in the review. If you don't use these, drop us an email to comms at bats.org.uk with a copy of your review. We're only able to post the prizes to addresses in the United Kingdom. And if you missed any of that, it's all in the show notes of this episode. Series three of Bat Chat continues in two weeks when I'll be joining Martin Cook, an expert in auto analysis in Staffordshire on the hunt for Brant's bats. And I'll leave you with a taste of what's to come in that next episode. I'll see you then. So by recording the bats that are actually leaving the cottage here, we know that, you know, the, those are Brant's recordings. And then we can use those for, for helping us to do manual identification of bats, but also for training data for automatic classifiers. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.